Welcome to episode 85 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we'll be doing a draft of the best songs of 1983. And like in our prior recent episodes, we'll each draft five songs apiece via Snake Draft. The first pick for 1983 goes to Larry, followed by Keith and then me, and we'll reverse the order for round two and so on for five rounds. Also, we'll have links to associated playlists in the notes to the episode. The intro song was picked by Larry, who's going to say a few words about it. So first of all, do I get credit as the uh, person to pick the first German language song in the history of our podcast? I, I know Keith's picked French songs and I think Spanish songs, but I don't know if anyone's ever picked a German language song. It's a little bit of cheating, right? Because it's a well-known English it's song. also not the first one. I picked Amandul in 1970. Oh, that's right. You did pick Amandul. I forgot about that. Or should I, I say Amandul 2? I don't think it's cheating because, yes, everyone might know the song. But one of the things that I find really interesting about the song, first of all, it's a great 80s hooky new wave pop song. And I, I, lo- I do love the hook. I also love the story because it's about the Cold War, which for all of us was a very real Thing. It was a real fear that everyone had, especially in 1983 when it was sort of the height of the Cold War. But one thing that's super interesting is that when we were growing up, you would hear the song in both German and English, but it was the German version that actually went to number two in the charts in the United States. I don't know why that was. I can't even remember if maybe one side was German and one side was English, but like when you would listen to like American Top 40 or Casey Kasem and he'd talk about 99 influence, they play the German version, which was I always thought was super cool. So, and then kind of like some of the lyrics, because German and English are, you know, somewhat similar, like you can kind of figure out what's going on, but they're not the same, apparently. Like if you did an actual translation, the lyrics are kind of different. So to me, very cool representative song of 1983, both the era musically, but also the era geopolitically, which has a lot of resonance. That breakdown. Do-do-do-do. That reminds me so much of like later 80s, early 90s. Like, yeah, I don't know, is Paul Abdul or New Kids on the Block or someone's riffing off that for sure. Yeah, yeah, well, and that's what it is. It is a new wave song, but it's very much a pop song. It's slightly kitschy, but for some reason, I feel like the German version, again, is a little more timeless. And I would, I still dig it when I hear it. You know, when I realized this was 83, although I think it didn't hit the charts in the United States till 84, but it definitely came out in 83 because I knew Scott would give me shit if I picked the wrong year. So I double checked, but it definitely came out in Germany, at least in 83. So good way to kick us off, I think. Yep. Catchy synth pop song. Totally a Larry tune. Could have been in our one hit wonders of the 80s episode. It definitely um, could have. I'm a little surprised we didn't pick it. I wonder if I had it and just. I think it was. Cut. Yeah. Anyway, like you said, very representative of that particular time. So 1983, guys, what do you think? Another year that I'm excited about. I think I probably know the first like five or six picks or maybe like five or six out of the first seven or eight picks that we're going to get to. But it's a lot of great music. There's a lot of really interesting ways you could go on specific albums where you could pick a couple of different songs, I think, on some seminal albums in 83. Also, this is really the, the height of New Wave, but also the beginning of some, I guess you would call it hair metal or metalish hard rock, whatever it is. That started to become a big influence too. And this is also the heyday of MTV. And that, without a doubt, influenced how things looked. Because you've got to, I think we talked about this in one of the previous ones, you've got these 
bands that have been used to going out on tour, maybe making a couple of appearances, not really having to worry about anything else except releasing records. And now all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I got to tease my hair and make like a five minute mini movie on this show that isn't even on TV. It's on some random cable thing. Like all this stuff is so new, but it did open up a lot of different type of artistry, not just video wise, but also I think it, it made people think a little bit more creatively about music and what music could be. So it's a super interesting year for me. And this is also like, this is like heyday. This is when I was like recording stuff off the radio for music, you know, trying to find new radio stations to listen to because you, you know, you're starting to explore more things, you know, you're, you're a teenager, you're in high school. This is like, this is it, you know? A lot of genres in 83, which is a great, a great part of it. Again, there are some that are sort of more dominant for me personally, clearly, <laughs> but there's a lot for everyone in 83. There's something for, you can fill up your picture with any of our sort of main genres here. Yeah. Yeah, I think 1983 was a great year and definitely stronger than 81 and 82, if not quite as phenomenal as 80. It has a good mix of classic rock, hard rock and metal, alternative rock, including some early college rock and hardcore touchstones, and of course, new wave and post-punk. So yeah, great year. Let's get it started, Larry. What's the best song of 1983? Like you guys don't know. I think the only real mystery is going to be what part I'd pick of this seven and a half minute long song. Probably to nobody's surprise, we're picking another new order of Joy Division songs. So that was Blue Monday. That is the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. 
most people probably now don't even know what that means, but 12 inch and seven inch were not albums. That was literally the size of a single. And they were typically dance tunes. They were typically extended singles. And the original version of that is seven and a half minutes long. This was probably the first New Order song that I really heard a lot and really got into. So for me, there's a little bit of nostalgia, but it's just an awesome synth pop new wave song. The definitive break where they're New Order and they're no longer Joy Division. You know, we played a lot of their songs where we say like, you can hear them changing a little bit. You can hear them morphing into New Order. This is a New Order song. At this point, they're no longer Joy Division. This is very synth-heavy. There's a lot of Moog and Roland drum machines, although there still is great drumming as well. The only vestige left of Joy Division is, once again, in the lyrics. Because, again, you're listening to this great, upbeat, tempo, new wave synth-pop song, and then you listen to the lyrics, and it's kind of dark and depressing about yet another relationship not going well. The lyrics are kind of haunting about how, you know, if Bernard Summer is the uh, is the protagonist, that the person isn't listening to him and telling him what to do and not, not being there for him. It, it's kind of dark and depressing, but it's a great dance song, so who cares, right? You just dance and then, you know, you'll find somebody else in the discotheque. Dance, dance, dance to the radio. The radio, yeah. Yeah, maybe they were hinting that they were ultimately going to go in the, in the dance direction way back when. Way back with transmission. Yeah, this is a new world order and certainly the direction that they ended up going in right this is the first of, of that you still have new order sort of holding on to some of the old order in 83 um but this was their signal of where they were taking sort of new wave right so yeah this is the transition from a post-punk band to a new wave band right and basically you know the start of like a genre, another new genre. Yeah, it's so different because it's almost entirely synth and drum machine based. It's slightly atonal in some of the rhythm, the way the rhythm goes for the, the keyboard versus the, the roll and drum machines. But it's also, like he said, it, it's a full transition into new. Now, I could have picked another song. There was another New Order song that I also considered picking, which I think still might get picked by one of the two of you. But from a definitive break standpoint i think you have to go with blue monday and also i mean like i said it is it is one of the best if not the best selling dance single of all time so just for legacy reasons yeah to- blue monday is a, is, is a singular piece right it's again it's a break point it's just one of those break point um tracks and music lore so yeah and it fucking kicks ass it's awesome yeah a dance song but it's also very atmospheric right yeah it has this robotic like perfection to it and it's very catchy despite not even having a chorus it being a long dance song there is a certain repetitiveness to it you can say that about most dance music in general and maybe bernard sumner's vocals lacking in curtis's charisma and uniqueness but what had such a great rhythm section even when maybe going a little overboard on the electronics and they really excel on this track to me, it's not their best song. I would pick Ceremony or Temptation, probably. But I think you can make a strong case that Blue Monday is the definitive quintessential New Order song that most represents what New Order is, irrespective of Joy Division. They've shed Joy Division. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the song that represents what they became, whereas Temptation and Ceremony were their transition, right? Transition. Transitional. 
Yeah. And I mentioned it's repetitive and long, but it doesn't seem overly long. I guess because its grooves are so damn good. Yeah, and there's also enough slight variation in some of it that it, it doesn't become monotonous, even though it might become repetitive. So, And this was another song, and this version of the song was on that Substance compilation that we've talked about a few yeah. times. Yeah, and and again, like like many of their dance songs, there's there's a couple of different versions. There's a 7-inch version, which is a little shorter. There's the 12-inch version, but they're both awesome. Clearly, this is the, the definitive version, it being the, the best-selling single of all time. All right. right, so that's number one. Number two is Keith, and I have a feeling we may be talking more about this band. I'm still debating even uh, what song to pick, to be honest. This is a tough year, man. It's an easy year in that there's so many great songs, but that that sometimes makes it harder, too. But he has a second pick. He knew what pick you were going to have. So he should know what he's going to pick. I should, but it's not <laughs> easy. Yeah, you can be you can be torn. We've had like a month to figure this out. Nice. Oh, definitely not what I thought. This is definitely going to be drafted. I'm just a little surprised Keith picked it instead of Larry and that he picked it this early. But not too surprised. I would go out tonight, but I haven't. follow-up to Noir, right, would be dismiss and their sort of introduction, I, I'd say, to the world with this trauma man. I love everything about that song, right? It's just got such a great... I mean, Johnny's awesome. Morrissey's in peak rare form. It's got depth. It's jangly, but it's dark, right? I love the, the way the ending you know, brings a certain menace quality to it, even though it's new wavy, <laughs> new wavy. Just a mix of everything just is something fresh and unique. And you know that there's just going to be a lot more from these guys, right? Just the, the combination of things that they bring to the table. You've got even Morrissey's Yelps, right, are spectacular in, uh, in, in their, how they're delivered. And, and the lyrics are great, right? They're just biting the sharp. Just a great song. Yeah. This was clearly on my list, but I didn't really think I would get a chance to draft it. I figured for sure it would not come back to me. But just like you, it's got everything that makes me love the Smiths. It's the jangle pop, you know, 
Johnny's guitar on it is just is so cool and so different, at least when I remember hearing this for the first time. It's jangle and then it turns, right? Yeah, well, it's jangly and post-punky. That's like what's so great about it. Even though Morrissey can be kind of like a, a self-absorbed dish sometimes, like his lyrics and his poetry is so good. And in this, this again, like this is your first introduction to him. He's using like archaic words to describe a scene, but you're immediately in that scene. It's funny. It's a little bit morbid. It also struck me when I was listening to this like yesterday or today. There's a lot of songs about Morrissey where he's trying to go out, but he can't because some something's going on. He doesn't have the right outfit. He's too sad. You know, something somebody like, his friend's not going to meet. Like he's got a, he's got a lot of going out phobias. But anyway, um, well, that's because when he goes out, he, he gets murdered or killed. So. Yeah, or, or right, or he gets run over, <laughs> or he gets run over by a two-ton truck. But anyway, we'll get to that later. The thing that like you mentioned too, like it turns a little menacey at the end. I mean, like this is a story of a guy getting picked up by you know, like he's a hitchhiker getting picked up by like some guy and he doesn't know exactly where this is going it's a little bit of flirting going on and it's kind of left unknown what happens right so there is that and that also ties into morrissey's persona and a lot of his critiques of english culture as well so <laughs> i hate to say this but it is kind of a charming song too like when you first hear it you're like oh that's a little bit different that's not exactly what i expected the song to be and then you listen to the lyrics and it drives it home Absolutely, it's charming. Both the guitar jangle and Morrissey's vocals. You could make a case that the Smiths were the most important British band of the 1980s. This was one of their quintessential songs, an early career highlight. The song that most people were introduced to the Smiths by. It has a nice forward drive as well. So shout out to the rhythm section, who are underrated or at least overshadowed by Morrissey and Ma, right? You have, I think they're overshadowed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so drummer Mike Joyce and bassist Andy Rourke, who passed away in May 2023. They really helped make this song what it is. It's a short, simple pop song, but it's pretty close to perfect in achieving what it sets out to do. So it's one of those, if you don't like this song, you're a bad person type of songs that we <laughs> talk about, right? Yeah. You like, how do you not like this charming man? It's just a great little tune. Yeah. All right, Scott, what do you got? This next pick is one of the greatest heavy metal songs of all time by a band making their fourth consecutive appearance in our 80s song draft episodes. That was my number one pick for you, but I mean, that was pretty obvious. I love that you're getting so predictable. It makes me so happy. Almost as predictable as you. Almost, but not quite. You may question Keith's picks from time to time, but I don't think we would ever call him predictable. No, definitely not. <laughs>
that was The Trooper by Iron Maiden from their awesome and underrated Peace of Mind album. The first album with new drummer Nico McBrain, who's been with them ever since. And has a drummer ever better introduced himself than on the intro drum flurry of the also terrific album opener, Where Eagles Dare? On a side note, I had a poster of this album cover on my bedroom wall for many years when I was a teenager. Side one in particular is spectacular. The album's violent, dark songs about religion, mythology, and war are all heavy and powerful epics, except for Quest for Fire, which, like Gangland on the prior album, kind of sucks. The Trooper is the clear high point on the album. This song is a hard-charging war epic on which the exciting music is a perfect match for the descriptive lyrics. Taken together, I almost feel like I'm on that battlefield, and the tension is palpable. The part where Bruce sings a burst of rounds takes my horse below before Nico's drums approximate gunfire is sheer perfection. And while it doesn't even have a proper chorus, it does have those memorable oh-oh-oh chants, and Dave Murray and Adrian Smith team up on a great guitar solo. The Trooper is a very heavy song that's also highly intelligent and quite musical. I think it's Iron Maiden's second greatest song after Hallowed Be Thy Name. And for the second year in a row, Iron Maiden would have had the number one pick if I had the first pick in this draft. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that last part. I like this a lot. It's not as good for me as I do like it. It's it's like maybe like my fourth or fifth favorite Iron Maiden song, but that still means it's a great song, right? It's just, for me, probably most of the previous album is better for me, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's just because the one I was like, I played the most when I was growing up. But I do think this showcases Bruce's vocals, and I do love the lyrics in it, right? I agree. It's much more cerebral than I think most people would give a heavy metal band credit for, but that's more of a prejudice than people actually listening to most metal lyrics, because that's not what people think of when they hear heavy metal. Whereas I've always thought of Maiden as being much deeper and more thoughtful about their lyrics than they get credit for. And I do agree. The drums in the beginning are fucking phenomenal. It's just the drums in the album. Yeah, and the so riffs of that great. Those intro riffs, you know right away what you're getting. There's no oh, yeah. ambiguity there. No, totally. They borrow from Hollowed a bit stylistically for the song. I can forgive it because Hollowed is the best song and Trooper's awesome. And it's killer. It's killer galloping, right? It's that galloping maiden sound. It's almost a quintessential maiden song in, in that way, right? That it incorporates everything that makes them yeah. great in a nifty package. The album's great too. I mean, Revelations and Where He Was There, they're awesome. And others as well. Um, yeah, Flight of Icarus, Thyroid Boots on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Flight. Uh, Five songs are awesome on this. Yeah, Five Two is not as good, but that has some new tunes as well. All the great metal bands have that gallop, right? Sabbath had it. Maiden has it. They've got dual lead guitars, and they've got Harrison on the bass, right? It's just they had a pretty good formula back then. The Trooper is more of the formula, I think, than than some of the other, like, than Fight of Icarus or Revelations. But it's majestic. It's a great metal song. Right. It's got enemies, it's got battlefields. It's got battle. Right? Right? <laughs> I mean, the, guy, the leading man dies at the end, right? And he yeah. doesn't cry, he doesn't cry as he takes his life back. <laughs> dies like a hero, and it's got exactly. storytelling. I've seen Maiden live more than any other band, and, and there are a few songs they have to play at every concert. The Trooper is definitely one of those songs. I'm guessing when he died, he had a Bruce on. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I have a sense of what you might pick as your second pick, but I, I think I have a sense too. I think I have a sense too. Let's get to it. I've always felt like this song is what Led Zeppelin would have aspired to had he not broken up after John Bonham's death. <laughs> This pick is a bit high, but I freaking love that song. That was Who's Behind the Door by Zebra, which has a majestic mix of acoustic guitars, synths, and technology. Zebra was an incredibly underrated band whose first self-titled album is flat out fantastic. They never really approached the overall level of that first album again, but to me, the album has aged incredibly well and is an overlooked classic. Who's Behind the Door is one of the great lost songs of the 80s. Its evocative beauty reminds me of Led Zeppelin's The Rain Song, until it's explosive, futuristic finish, that is. This is one of those two songs and one songs. The first half is a lush acoustic gem, and part two is a hard-rocking prog rock meltdown. The philosophical lyrics are really good as well. This is an expertly crafted and intelligent song. Group leader Randy Jackson is a rare triple threat a great singer, songwriter, and guitarist. Though to some people his high-pitched vocals may be a bit of an acquired taste, I think they're incredibly powerful. And all these years later, these guys still have a hardcore following here on Long Island, New York. I've seen them several times, and they always kick ass live with the same original power trio lineup. And to further the Led Zeppelin connection, they always play a bunch of Zepp covers and do an incredible job on them. And to further the 80s connection, the song's music video is awesomely cheesy in a very 80s way. There's nothing like a great, awesomely cheesy 80s video. The most epic, of course, is Billy Squire, which literally ruined his career. <laughs> yeah. There's good cheesy and there's bad cheesy. Yeah. And there's it's awful cheesy. cheesy. And there's awful cheesy. Yeah. And Billy like, 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 it seriously ended his career. That's how bad yeah. it was. I love how Scott says uh, Randy Jackson is an acquired taste vocally, but can't 
even entertain the idea that Robert Plant might be as well. <laughs> I also love the fact that that Scott is intentionally making lots of Led Zeppelin connections to justify his number two pick of this. Yeah, song. I'm basically <laughs> picking Led Zeppelin here. <laughs> exactly. This is a high pick for this, and especially in a loaded year like '83. It's one of these songs where, like, in the beginning, it's kind of mid, right? It's like you know, okay. in the beginning. In, yeah, in the beginning. But so what keeps referring to that, which is why we're both smiling at each other, is the intro song to Shout at the Devil in the beginning, which is yeah, also which is, which is 83. Yeah, I know. I actually had that as a deep cut maybe for you, Scott. I don't know. But anyway, it's sort of mid. It's like an average 80s like power rock song. But the end is pretty epic. This wouldn't be on my list at all until the end. The end is great. I think the first half is just great. okay. It's not bad. It's just like no, okay. I disagree. I love it. I think obviously we have you picked at number two. You're with your no. number two pick. Didn't we have this in another episode in the eighties? This was in our eighties tournament. I feel like it, we're not allowed to pick songs that we've already no, picked. I, I never said that. Actually, I think we should pick the best songs per year. If we happen to overlap, that was like forty episodes ago. Nobody's gonna <laughs> call us out. On that. <laughs> I remember that. I love, how, I love how you're swiveling in your chair nervously, like whether or not you we, we're judging your pick. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I love it. I, I know Keith loves it. Love it as the number four song for 1983. I could listen to it and think that it belongs in that category. Again, I know right. it's going to be the least known song of the top ten picks, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be the least known song until you fire off one of your last round picks. Absolutely. But it's, to me, it's one of the most underrated songs of all time and puzzlingly so given how it fits in with sort of hard rock of that era. But they never made it to where their fan base thought they deserved to be, especially on the strength of the album as a whole, because it's a great, it's a great, and I'm sure we've talked about this last, but it's a great overall album. Look, there's plenty of music out there in probably that came out in 1983 that we're never going to touch on because we never heard, which is some of it can probably be equally as epic as some of the stuff that we picked. It's just luck of the draw sometimes, whether or not it gets selected and we hear it, right? Great band. Bill can bring it live. Second album was good. There hasn't been many albums, but for one album at least, I think it's an all-time classic personally and well worth discovering or rediscovering if you can uh, find it anywhere the song is not on spotify we'll probably put a live version in there all right, right. what do you got i thought this would be his first pick but here so. we are it was definitely going to be picked by him at some point yeah unless larry was going to backstab him again hey that was not backstabbing man that was my pick that would have been my number one pick if i had the number one pick <laughs>
age of consent. Bye. New Order. This is the best New Order song not on their substance compilation. Can we agree on that? Yeah, that's a good call. Um, Power Corruption of Lies, a proper album from 1983, not a single. And it's everything that is great about Joy Division, New Order. Again, it's sort of still part of that. It's right. It's not the Blue Monday New Order. It's still a throwback part of New Order. And I just got to give a shout out to Your Silent Face and Leave Me Alone on that album as well. The three of them sort of bring tears to my eyes. There's a shoegaze element to it. For the first time hearing it just now, I made the connection to clap your hands and say yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Right? Like it's yeah. just... Jumps, it just jumps out, and and that's probably why I love that first album of theirs so much. Is because I subconsciously had made the connection. Um, I was reading a um like a like a ranking of New Order songs, and all three of those songs are I think in the top like six or seven. I think Age of Consent was three, and you can imagine what one and two are: Ceremony and Temptation. But all three of those songs are in the top like seven, and I agree. This is still a little transitory but that baseline man peter it's beautiful right it's so good fucking beautiful man it's just like that clip is a perfect two minutes of music it's got everything that i it draws me it just draws me in it's it's got it it's got it all i didn't pick it first because i expected it to be around on the way back but i i could have gone one two in order once again yeah you wouldn't have gotten it back if you hadn't picked it now Interesting. Probably my favorite song of the year. And I only didn't pick it first because I wanted to just, I wanted to make sure I got Charming Man. I, I thought I'd get it way back here. And I figured another one, two, New Order Joy Division. It's a little cliche. It's a little cliche. You get to break it up a little bit. And Your Silent Fates and Leave Me Alone will be on our Honorable Mentions playlist. And it may not have been a single, but Age of Consent is one of their most popular songs with almost 120 million plays on Spotify at the moment. Like you guys said, it has that classic Peter Hook bass line. Stephen Morris's drumming is awesome, like usual. And Bernard Sumner's guitar and Gillian Gilbert's keyboards, Ed Colvin, both have impressive solo spotlights as well, which we didn't get to. Actually, kind of, I think we did hit the keyboard solo. We did, but she's definitely underrated as part of New Order. Her synths, keyboards. Absolutely, yep. And part of the sound. You don't have to put it on a playlist, but... There's a fifth song, Confusion, which is also it's great. Also, could yeah. be on, right? Could have been a pick. That's where they were in the peak of their powers. It's almost inconceivable that, like, from '79 to '83, what they did, yeah, what they did. Bernard Sumner's vocals lack the authority and pathos of Ian Curtis, but he's a good singer too in his own way. And this song has a build. And you know we love our bills. He does something that Ian would never do, right? He throws in his own sort of whoop or whoop. Yeah. Um, this is a much poppier summer than Blue Monday, right? Yeah, there's a lightness. There's a lightness slash right? It's like, yeah, it's one of those light heavy. Dichotomy, so. yeah, which we love. All right, so I've got double picks now. My first pick at the understandable risk of once again being called predictable i'm fairly confident that this song is very familiar to most of our listeners but it would be almost malpractice as a music nerd not to play it is there more than one song from the album that yes i think i know your next two picks 
I don't think you know my next two picks, but maybe you do. This is a perfect example for this year. Because I may gone with the I'm guessing I may I was gonna go with the other one. No, you're picking the right one, Larry. Oh, I actually I I'm wrong. I, 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 right. So I, one of them has three hundred forty million plays on Spotify, the other one has twenty three million. No, no, I, I I was thinking the wrong so you're going to pick the one okay. that has 340 million. I yeah, I, I conferred with my like the the biggest YouTube fan that I know, my friend John Brennan, and he did say like you could. There's actually a couple of other songs he suggested too, but he's like you got to pick this one. You do, but I was going to pick the live clip from the same song. That's a very good point. There were two classic YouTube albums you know. this year: a studio album yeah. and a live album. I would go with the studio version personally. There's just a part. Of the, the there's a. I'm so sick of it. There you go. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. They threw that, if they threw that in their studio version, then I know. Like, that's one thing about you too is that they have elements of live songs that you like wish, oh my God, why didn't they do that in the studio? Well, and we've, right, exactly. And we've done that, right? We've already done that with him. But in this case, I think we have to play the studio version. I listened to 11 o'clock TikTok today. Like, that's a freaking great song that nobody ever talks about from Under a Blood Red Sky. Is 40 not the epic closer of closers? Yeah, maybe suggested that we could we could have picked that, but but again, I think we were all in agreement. And how ass kicking is too hard speed is one. Yeah, there's a lot to choose from. This is a fucking epic year. U two was awesome back then. I don't get the U two haters. I'll never understand the U two haters, man. I don't understand you. You know what? I don't agree with the U two haters, but I I don't think it's based on music. Put it that way. It's not based on music. It's based on they don't they don't know a girl named Party. That's that's the problem. All right, we've had a long build-up to the song, so. It's not a rebel song. It is not a rebel song. I feel like the Under Blood Red Sky version is the first version I heard, but I, I'm probably wrong because it doesn't seem like that would be the first version. But I do remember, like, this is not a rebel song. That's how I remember it. Yeah. Obviously, the other song that was under consideration was New Year's Day. Yes. Look, you can go, you can go back and forth, but especially for early U2, this was like the quintessential 
song. This was the breakthrough song. This was like the, the anthem song, right? And it, it's so resonant. I mean, I, I'm fairly confident that everyone knows what was going on in Ireland in the 80s, probably the worst time of the Troubles. And this was a protest song, but it was a protest song from what was starting to become one of the biggest bands in the world. And it's hard to imagine now the power that you can have by doing this, because now it's so much easier to be able to get your message across. This is a band who was very, very active and very conscious about what they were doing and also on an upward trajectory, not at their peak yet, using their platform to talk about something they fervently believed in. And you feel that passion. You feel that passion in Bono's vocals. You feel that passion in the rhythm. You feel that in Edge's guitar. His guitar, it makes you feel like you're in this conflict and you're trying to get out of it. It's epic on so many levels. The live version is so good. If you've ever seen them in concert, it's always a showstopper. It's beyond. Did a, a protest song without it being cliche or manipulative or yeah. right. And, and that's hard. That's hard, it's to, hard pull to pull off. off. Yeah. Um, and, and they did it spectacularly. And yeah. it's again, it's, it is the, the power of the media, right? Where you take art and you make it important. That's when things like come together in something that's bigger and grander than just a freaking song. And while New Year's Day rules January 1st, you know, every other day is something. <laughs> yeah, New Year's Day is more like the atmospheric vibe that they would kind of carry forward on the unforgettable fire in the Joshua Tree. Sunday Bloody Sunday is one of their most overtly political songs. And the album War was basically their coming out party, right? This was yeah. their first really big album by a band who would become a really a dominant force over the next few years and even today, really. I think Under a Blood Red Sky brought like their back catalog with their current songs in one awesome package yeah. that yes. sort of amplified. And, and that's, I think, in part why you, you sort of associate a lot of these songs back to that, to that album because, you know, if you were going to get into you too at that point because you discovered Sunday, Bloody Sunday or New Year's Day, that was the better place to go to, to you know, dive, dive in. Yeah, it's one of the great live albums of the 80s under a blood red sky and it has versions that are clearly the definitive versions of the song we played. I will follow in our 1980 from Under a Blood Red Sky, Caloria. It also has songs that most people may not even know, like we talked about 11 o'clock TikTok, Party Girl, The Electrico from Boy is featured there as well. Back to Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It has everything that makes you two great. You have the passionate, powerful vocals about politics from Bono. Larry Mullen Jr. really powering the song along with those militant drums. And, of course, the Edge's singular guitar sound. Steve Lillywhite produced, and he has his own signature sound as well. Huge-sounding drums, for example. And the violins give the song a unique flavor as well. The song is classic U2, period. Back when they were tangentially at least related to punk and rocked out more than they would in later years. So this is classic early U2. War was there. Greatest early album, as was Under a Blood Red Sky, really. When you talk about must-have U2 albums, they're both on that list. Yeah. And Sunday Bloody Sunday, I think, is the right pick. Like we said, the Spotify numbers don't lie. 
It's the bigger song. New Year's Day is fantastic as well, but... Sunday Bloody Sunday announces that U2 is a fucking force, right? And they've got something to say. And you can't ignore this band. Another song we all knew was going to get picked. Maybe New Year's Day was going to be picked, but probably not. I debated it, but it had to be Sunday Bloody Sunday. All right, so my next one, it's a twofer, but I got a twofer for the reason. So I'm going to play a song. And I love how he just throws in it's a two for like you could just pick two songs, like no problem. Yeah, he's, he's the DJ. I'm the DJ, so I can. A I can, and B, you'll understand why when I explain it. I'm not even gonna explain it to you guys. You guys are just gonna have to Oh, I know what I know what it's gonna be. Do you really? Yep. You want me to tell you? Yeah. It's white lines. So why is it a twofer? Because liquid liquid had a Fuck. Yes! That's impressive, man. By the way, these aren't the two songs I thought you were going to pick. Well, one of them was, but not this one. I'm not surprised, though. You can't have it both ways, dude. You can't tell me I'm predictable and then say I'm not predictable. Well, you're predictable, but not 100% predictable. All right, I guess I'll, t- I guess I'll take that. I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> Do drugs like lying there, sad a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> a little oh, bit like that. PSA. It's totally like mocking a PSA. Yeah, Without, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally tongue in cheek. So the twofer that I played there, the first song was called "Cavern" by Liquid Liquid, and then the second, which is more known, is "White Lines" by Melly Mel or by Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel. But it's a little murky as to like the provenance of that. The reason I played both is that <laughs> "White Lines" is a classic quintessential 1983 early hip-hop song it's very well known obviously it's about cocaine and the drug trade what's not well known is that the riff the most famous riff from it it's not like a sample it's literally a blatant appropriation ripoff of liquid liquids cavern and there was lots of lawsuits back and forth about that because Again, like this is before that was a thing where you would sample and you would pay rights. They just ripped it off, like blatantly ripped it off. Having said that, White Lines is a great early hip-hop song. 
just like the previous Grandmaster Flash Sun that we played, it's topical. It talks about the drug trade. It also talks about the hypocrisy of the drug trade. So a lyric that, you know, we didn't necessarily play talks about the disparity between a kid on the street selling a few bags and a millionaire, which in this case was an explicit reference to John DeLorean, who famously got busted trying to sell Coke to be able to finance his dream of selling DeLoreans, which then became a time machine for those who are Back to the Future fans, where businessmen would get, you know, put to a cushy white collar prison and kids on the street for selling, you know, a hundredth of the same amount would get sent away for, you know, 10 years. So a little social commentary in there, but just a great baseline, great riff, great early hip hop song. And I'm very impressed, Keith, that you knew exactly what Super I was going to go for. Yeah, well, I'm less impressed than Scott didn't know. <laughs> I'm less impressed with white lines now that I know about this blatant thievery. It's not like it was a sample. It was just like, they're like, oh, that's a cool riff. Let's use it. <laughs> not only the riff, like, doesn't the song reference white lines? It doesn't reference white lines, but it, but the, the line, something of a phenomenon, yeah. is directly from Cavern. Yeah, okay. They're they're definitely yeah. like direct. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, like, yeah. Not just, it's not just like the. No, it's not just a riff. It's also something of a phenomenon. Yeah. So for those who missed our 1982 episode, the prior Grandmaster Flash song was The Message. This is another classic early rap song, but it's also a groovy funk song and even a pop song, which yeah, totally. is really what appeals to me. This song has kind of been spinning in my head really for the last week. It's really catchy. It's fun. Wait, seriously? It has? That's yeah, awesome. It has. It's definitely been lodged in my cranium. I dig it. There's uh, hope for you in the 90s and 2000s. Maybe there is hope for me. There's definitely that dichotomy of the upbeat, fun music versus the lyrics, which tell a darker story, right? It is a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? Like, whereas the message is different, right? The message is storytelling in a, in a stark manner. White Lines is sort of making fun of, you know, it's sort of making light of it in a way of it. Or maybe shining a light in a hysterical way around okay. pain and yeah. blowback and that's it. That there's there's definitely not to make a bad pun. There's definitely a message though about the differences that African Americans were facing. Versus, yeah, but I was just going to say that it's yeah. also a commentary on the criminal justice. Yeah, system. for sure. But in a way, a warning, a warning about cocaine, but also sort of. It's in like, a way that's you know could be a, a comment, right? It's it, almost like it's almost like an air quotes of like. Don't do coke. Right, exactly. Despite how awesome it is. It's awesome, <laughs> but you may end up broken. Yeah. All right, Keith, you're up. Pick number three for you. Let me guess. You have no idea. I have no idea what I'm going to pick here. <laughs> Before we get into my pick, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Pepsi. Nice. Well played. I want the Pepsi. 
the greatest metal song of 1983, institutionalized by legendary, however you want to label them, suicidal tendencies. This was their introduction to the world that I can't even fathom a greater introduction to the world than this ridiculous psychopathic. Psychopathic is perfect for it. It's just so out there. It's groundbreaking. Again, it's sort of a mix of genres into something new and never replicated from my standpoint. I love this song. I've loved it since the day I met it. So I'm going to quote the Trouser Press Guide, which is called the Bible of Alternative Rock. There were several versions of book form. I had the 1997 version way back when, and now it's all available on the Internet. Quote, half song, half recited, and built on repeated sudden tempo changes, institutionalized as a unique, devastating centerpiece. One of the era's quintessential expressions of teen dislocation, it converts generation gap misunderstandings into a complete communications breakdown, encapsulating all the punk sociology of films such as Repo Man and Suburbia in four minutes. I think that quote sums up this song very well. I find institutionalized to be funny, disturbing, and affecting. The guitarist is set to shred mode throughout, and you got to sympathize with the poor guy. I mean, he just wanted a damn Pepsi. He just wanted a fucking Pepsi. We decided my best interest. Yeah, when I went to your schools. Yeah. That is trouble, kid. Yeah, you could have played that part, too, right? When he sits down with both his parents instead of just his mom ragging on him. <laughs> fucking mom. Come on, man. Right, but clearly a kid with issues. Just trying to think, man. I'm okay. I just need to just try to think. Give him, give him a fucking break. It's kind of spoken word, also. Yeah, no, definitely black flag. Right there is black flag. Teddy Rollins, yeah, hardcore punk. I would call it right. I would say that's funny. Like you were saying, it's undefinable. I would call it hardcore. But it's metal too. You can't say it's not metal. Yeah, I could, but it's but it's. You could, but you'd be wrong. I could, but I'd be wrong. All right. Great tune, though. Like, like you said, there's no song like it. It's very unique and crazy, it's, insane, but in a cool way. That's an announcement of a band, right? Like that is saying, yeah. you know, uh, again, it's one of those take notice. We're not something that you've seen before. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And to further that metal connection, Metallica's bass player Rob Trujillo was originally in Suicidal Tendencies. All right, we got d- double picks. What do you got? Quote the title of Pat Boone's 1997 album. <laughs> I'm in a metal mood. So here we go again. And no, I'm not referring to the White Snake song. That's 1987. This is the third song from the singer that we featured so far in our song drafts from three different bands. My number two, Scott Pick. Damn, I am getting. And not even, and not even a debate about which song from the album. Even right, though exactly. The one. Exactly. All right, yeah. So yeah. we got. Holy Diver, Don't Talk to Strangers, absolute classics. This is the one. All right, you've probably figured out what song I'm going to pick by now. So I just want to do a shout-out to my buddy Eric Rosenthal, who loves Ronnie James Dio more than anyone I know and probably more than anyone alive, including his wife.
That was Rainbow in the Dark by Dio from Holy Diver. We played this song before, right, Scott? Yeah, in the 80s tournament. In the 80s tournament. And I think I made the, and it was probably predated Generative AI, but if you told Generative <laughs> AI to create a Ronnie James Dio song from 1983, this is what it would have spit out. <laughs> Absolutely. I once posted the following on a music message board, and a lot of fellow music nerds agreed with it. Ronnie James Dio is widely acclaimed as one of the best heavy metal singers ever, but I feel he's still underrated as an overall artist. His run from 1975 to 1984, encompassing three legendary bands, Rainbow, Black Sabbath, and Dio is nearly unprecedented. During that time, he was a major contributor, both writing and singing to several albums that are considered genre classics, especially Rainbow Rising, Heaven and Hell, and Holy Diver. I feel that not only is this one of the greatest runs in heavy metal history, but in all of rock history. Only it's never mentioned as such. End quote. Did Scott Floman just quote Scott Floman? Scott Floman quoting Scott Floman. <laughs> I think I'm anonymous on the message board. That's not even meta. That's just like... <laughs> Is that obnoxious? It's just like egotistical, but it's it's fine. It's okay. It's your podcast. You can do whatever yeah. you want. I'm just trying to show the love for Dio here, you know? I'm just trying to show the love to Scott Floman. Here's Scott Floman quoting Scott Floman. Yeah. <laughs> I just would like to quote one of the greatest rock critics of all time, Scott Floman. Wait. That's good. <laughs> Continuing, Dio was short in stature, but man, he had a huge and distinctive voice. Rainbow in the Dark is probably his signature Dio band song. And notice I didn't say a solo Dio because Dio is the name of a band. The rest of the band, especially drummer Vinny Apici and guitarist Vivian Campbell were awesome as well. And Jimmy Bain, also formerly of Rainbow, did his part as well. And along with the piece, he formed a relentlessly galloping rhythm section. Again, we got some galloping going on with some great metal. Obviously, the keyboards here are very memorable as well as somewhat cheesy. The song is great and heavy throughout, but Campbell's amazing guitar solo must be mentioned. And it's followed by an awesome PC drum crescendo. Lastly, the cheesy and strange low-budget music video amuses me to no end. Rainbow in the Dark is just a classic metal tune all around. Quote, unquote, Scott Floman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to be totally objective about the song because I have, like, a nostalgic feeling for the song and loving this song. But as I get older, I, like, appreciate parts of it more and I dislike parts of it more. It's kind it's of more card Yeah. It's yeah. more cartoonish. Like yeah. In retrospect, 14-year-old me versus older me. Older me, <laughs> yeah, versus not 14-year-old you. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's metal well, in general, right? Me, metal, love this song. <laughs> metal in general is for the teenager in us, right? Right, but some age is better than others. And some age is better than others. I think this song is flawed, but it's still awesome. I agree with the flaws, but it's still yeah. awesome. Yeah, but what we're saying is that there's a nostalgic element that compensates for the flaws of the song and, and again i think that's part of what makes metal a little bit more enduring for their flaws than other genres because it's meant for the teenage you right so it brings you back to that i would agree with that from a nostalgic standpoint but i do think that as i've gotten wiser more worldly as opposed to older yeah. there's definitely some metal 
that I think is more timeless. Like to me, a lot of like death metal and black metal, if you get away from some of the vocals, the music is more timeless. The music is almost like classical music. Yeah. It flows more. It doesn't feel like it's of the 2000s or 2010s or 2020s. Whereas if I'd never heard this song before and you played it for me and said, when did this song come out? I would say the first half of the 1980s, right? Because yeah, of the keyboards. Yeah. 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 So like we mentioned before with Maiden, it's almost hard rock. It's a much as it is. melody there. There's a catchiness there. It yeah. is metal. Dio is metal, but it's all It'll always be metal. This is what do you think of what I said He's... about Dio overall, though? Do you agree with that assessment? I might have to dock him a few points for creativity. He had a band called Rainbow. He's got a song. Rainbow. Come on, man. Come and on. again, it's not like he didn't join a bunch of no-names. Yeah. I mean, like, he <laughs> put together, like, an all-star team, you know? He was an essential contributor to each of those bands, and he yeah. changed those bands. Black Sabbath with Dio was not Black Sabbath with Ozzy. But Geezer was Geezer. <laughs> Yeah. It was both, right? He was amazing, and he was fortunate to be surrounded by them. Yeah, no, look, I, I, but that I, ten-year I, run, I'll put up. If I'm judging a ten-year run of bands or artists, I think his is way up there. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think people acknowledge that. They say he's one of the greatest singers of all time, but they don't acknowledge his overall greatness. Part of that has to do with the fact that he was more iterant, right? He went from band to band to band. Like, yeah. You tend to get more of that respect. You're part of a band for a, a long time and there's more continuity. That's part of the reason why his legacy isn't as well known. And there's the stigma against metal in general, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. More... Thanks, Bowman. So the song I was going to pick here was Fall of the Peacemakers by Molly Hatchet. But I'm not going to pick it because I don't think these guys, meaning Keith and Larry, will have much to say about it. And it was previously played and discussed as the outro song in episode 56. I've been on a bit of a mission in these song drafts to make sure that I include my favorite epic southern rock songs like Whipping Post Live, Freebird, Greengrass and High Tides, and Highway Song. And Fall the Peacemakers deserve to be in the pantheon of epic southern rock songs. So definitely check it out if you're not familiar with it. And Larry... Do me a favor and add it to the playlist. Even though we're not picking it, I think it'll be a cool addition. As for what song I'm going okay. to pick here, this next band had two bigger hits in 1981. And those are both great songs as well. But to me, this is the best song from this band, who were big in the early 80s, but soon faded away thereafter. It's a solid pick. I had this on my list. I had my list. I crossed it off. Ultimately, but I had it on my list. This is a great pick because I, I feel like this is their best song, even though it's probably their third most famous song. I do like the Motorhead version better. <laughs> <laughs>
I was overkill by the Australian band Men at Work, which was a number three U.S. hit from their second album, Cargo. And of course, the two previous songs I alluded to, which were both number one U.S. hits, were Who Can It Be Now with its unforgettable saxophone and the land down under where guys were six foot four and full of muscle. Those songs were from their first and best album, Business As Usual. Overkill is written by singer Colin Hay and again features some memorable sax as well as guitar. What really elevates this moody yet melodic pop rock tune to me are Hay's emotional vocals and the lyrics about depression and anxiety hit home as well and have a timeless appeal. This is one of those songs where people of a certain age will hear it and be like, yeah, I remember that song, while also remembering how great it is and wondering why they'd semi-forgotten about it. That last thing that you just said resonates so much with me because when I think of Men at Work, I think of the two songs that you mentioned, right? I think of Who Can It Be Now and Down Under. It's actually kind of hard to explain how huge those songs were in 81. They were probably two of the biggest singles of 1981. And they're two songs we easily could have picked in 1981. They are classic tunes. They are classic. I'll, I'll agree that I'd pick Overkill as their best song. I, exactly. What you said, Scott, is so true in that as we've gotten wiser, more mellowed, Overkill is the more deeply resonant song. This is one of those songs where it comes on and you're like, I forgot how fucking awesome this song is, but I did not appreciate how awesome this song was when I was 12 and a half. As opposed to now, you know what I just realized as I'm saying when I was 12 and a half in 1983, you could pretty easily do the math and figure out how old I am now, even though we're trying to avoid yeah, that. Yeah, trying, yeah, trying to avoid saying how old I am. But anyway, don't do the math. It definitely resonates more. I think it's not even close. The other two songs are classics. This is their deepest popular song. Like This is the one that hits the most. This one hits hard. Yeah, and that clip, right? That's the clip, right? Those vocals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hit so but, hard, man. The song is really made by the crescendo, right? Like how it it builds into until that that point. And that's why it ultimately didn't make my cut because the totality of the song doesn't fulfill for me as much promise of that one sort of apex, but but I I still think it's a really good song and worthy of being picked. Definitely. Right. And this is the song Colin Hay I think is most proud of in his time at Men at Work. He's had an underrated but fairly successful like solo career after this but this is the song he feels like the most connection with and the one that he's like the proudest of and i remember reading that and thinking i get it the other songs it's not that they're dated i still think they're really great songs but they're definitely of a time this song feels more timeless this song feels like it stands but those other songs are from a time and a place yeah that is very true i think it's deeper it's a little more intense like you said a little more timeless yeah love it and best of all it makes me a little less predictable, right, that I picked this song. It does make you a little less predictable. I did not have this as a Scott song, but I'm glad you picked it. We didn't have this as a pick for Scott, but if somebody was going to pick it, it was going to be Scott. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah that's... because it's like more of a classic rock tune, right? Yeah. All right. Getting some uh, change-ups now. Now anything goes. So... I still think there are a couple, three songs, actually, that we have to pick. This is such a fucking great year. But of course, now that we've switched things up and made it more unpredictable, who's up but Keith? Okay. Wow, it's the wrong song, dude. Nope. Yeah, I'm torn because on the one hand, I sent both of you guys an image of a t-shirt that I kind of want to get. 
that is this song. Actually, there are like five songs in this album we could have picked. This is an epic album. I have a different song. I'm not going to argue with you because this is a great song. I do think the other song is probably better. It's this more song, iconic. Yeah, the other song is more iconic. There are elements of this song that are just so unavoidable. Like, both songs have that element, though. Nah. All right. Play the fucking song. I'm going to play both of them. That's a good compromise. Maybe I wanted to get a double in. And this Same is my way. Get it. This is a subtle way of getting it. Very slide. I like it. Well done. Well played. The Spotify nerd speaks again. 220 versus 30 million. Why don't we play Taylor Swift, Scott Floman? You want to play Bad Bunny now? <laughs> Kadena really wants me to get tickets to go see Bad Bunny. And I like Bad Bunny. I think Bad Bunny is a great artist. A great artist? Really? That's yeah. pushing it, man. That's pushing it. Dude, that's just your, your, your view. Right. Yeah. Great. You know, that word is way overused. You call him Bad Bunny Great. Hi, Grandpa. I think you don't appreciate it. I'm going to pick one of my deep tracks now just to piss you off. That song's fucking awesome. Of course it is. And so is this one. Yeah. Big hands, I know 
say clearly that head-to-head matchup is a knockout for Kiss Off. <laughs> I don't know about that. You were all the time. That was great. You were all the time. That kind of has a 10, man. That's pretty epic. The opening of Blister in the Sun is epic. Like, if that doesn't... If that doesn't get your nostalgia up and it's just an epic, new wavy, post-punk, teenage angst song, nothing does. But yes, the countdown and Kiss Off, I, I had both of them on my list. And I did send these guys, because I'm going to get it, a t-shirt where it just says, it says one, and then it's family, and then two, and it, it lists all ten. It's awesome. I think it's that battle we deal with, right? More iconic classic song versus the song you like better, right? The signature song from the Violent Femmes is Blister in the Sun. It's their most classic, most popular, and many would say greatest song. Keith picked Kiss Off, which is a phenomenal song also. They got this folk punk sound, right? Very unique, acoustic, yet it's got this edge to it. Very influenced, I think, by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, as well as the Velvet Underground. There were other songs on this album we could have picked. Gone Daddy Gone, right? Gone Daddy Gone. Played a cover by Gnarls Barkley, and has, in my opinion, the greatest xylophone solo in rock history. Go ahead, find me a better one. (laughs) And then there's Add It Up, another classic one. Add It Up is great also. Good feeling, right? What a phenomenal it's ballad a, that is. It's man. a great, it's a great album, and this is so much of a teenage angsty album, yeah, right? Yeah, like the Violent Femmes were singing and talking about stuff that we were all thinking or like dealing with, or at least I don't know. Maybe you guys had totally normal, like you know, idyllic teenage years, but most people didn't. Yeah. Violent Femmes spoke to me, man. It has this rawness to it. Again, there's the quote-unquote acquired taste vocals, right? They're not for everybody. That's why they were never going to be a commercial band. They were always going to be a cult band. The vocals are an acquired taste. It's a little nasally. It's a little little grating. But, God, the lyrics and the musicianship is just top-notch. God, is it fucking good. I had both of these songs on, and I had the same thing. I'm like, I got to pick Blister in the Sun. But Kiss Off is my more favorite song. Blister is the song you think of with the Violent Femmes. Everybody does. But I can't necessarily say it's a better song after hearing them back-to-back. They're both phenomenal. So props to Keith for picking the non-obvious pick. Both great. Glad we played them both. Their first self-titled album is an absolute classic, a cornerstone of any alternative rock library. So glad we got them in here. Forgot what was it for? (laughs) Nice. I can't wait to get that t-shirt. So my next pick, once again, I feel like I don't want to be predictable, but I've got like five songs that I could pick for my last two picks. So the way I'm thinking about this is I'm going to go with the fact that you probably are going to pick one of my songs that I intentionally choose not to pick. I'm going to go with God. Total Eclipse. Like I said, I think there were three songs we have to pick that we haven't picked yet. It was really four. One of them was Blister in the Sun. Oh, okay. Still well, I would have picked, if Keith had not picked uh, Kiss Off, I would have picked Blister in the Sun. But now that he didn't, it's funny you mentioned Total Eclipse of the Heart. When I go to hell, I'm fairly confident that the soundtrack that they play to torture me will strongly feature Total Eclipse of the Heart. This goes back to Meatloaf hatred. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Meatloaf will definitely be on it. Yeah. Well, Jim Steinman was Meatloaf's songwriter, Meatloaf. and he wrote Wait, Total Eclipse of the Heart. He wrote that song, too? Yeah. 
So clearly, he's my he's my unknown arch enemy. He's my nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> what else, what else did he write? An air supply song. Oh my god! It's, yeah. yeah, he clearly has it in for me. I'm in hell. He's going to be sitting there DJing for me. That is what you call an over-the-top vocal. It totally flips to the heart. Yeah. Not much subtlety there. No. I'm thinking of Scott's next song. I'm between I, two. I, I may surprise you guys. But now I feel like I have to pick a song I don't want to pick because you guys are not picking the songs we need to pick. Here we go again. Well, you know. That's Here we go again on my own. Scott's going to pick that. It's 87. I said that before. <laughs> This band, I don't think we've talked about yet, but I also feel like we can't talk about the 80s without talking about this band. And this is my favorite song by them, so I'm going to play it. So that was Everything Counts by Depeche Mode. Were those horns at the end? Those are fucking horns, baby. That's why I played that part of the clip. So I played the beginning, like, 23, 4 seconds, and then I played a middle so I could get the horns. I was on the fence. Until you got the horns? All right, Keith, give it to us. Come on, Keith. Fucking horns! It's been a long time since we've had fucking horns. That's what puts it over the edge for me. I mean, I love that part of the song. This was Depeche Mode's first album since Vince Clark left. And we talked about Vince Clark a little bit last episode where Scott mentioned that he was part of three iconic 80s bands in Depeche Mode, which he left, Yaz or Yazoo, as they were known in uh, the UK, and then Erasure. This is a synth pop song, right? It's very clearly a synth pop song. It's very synth heavy, but it's also a little dark. It's very socialistic anti-capitalism, like there's some dark lyrics going on. Martin Gore's vocals in this are phenomenal. No, 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 Dave Dahan. Yeah, yeah, sorry, messed that up. There's just something about this song that 
pushes me like every time. Like it makes me, I feel like this is one of those songs where even though it's a fairly straightforward song, I still discover new things about it all the time. And Depeche Mode was a huge, huge synth pop band in the 80s. I feel like we haven't talked about them and I'm not sure we're going to pick them again. So I needed to get them in. There's an understated greatness yeah. to the song. You have to be willing to look for the greatness. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, can't, I totally get it. Doesn't it. Jump, it doesn't jump out at you the same way that, that other uh, yeah. songs do. It's in line with where New Order was going yeah. and where sort of New Wave was going. At, it's, at, it's definitely at, a New Wave synth pop song of the night. Not a dance song like, like Blue no, Monday. No, it's darker than that. And Depeche Mode went darker as they went on, right? When you get to like Master and Servant, when you get to some of their 90s stuff, they definitely go darker, but this is still... As his hair got longer, as his hair got longer. As his hair got longer. Yeah, maybe yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure we're going to play Depeche Mode again in 1990. This yeah, is probably. an early classic. I think basically it's a great tune, but I kind of feel like everything we said about Blue Monday, we could say about this as well. Synth pop, it's hooky, it's atmospheric. You got some falsetto vocals and some deeper vocals. That comparison with New Order is apt. They were kind of the titans of that style in that era. They were even bigger than New Order. I mean, they were playing stadiums. Like, they were yeah. huge. Is that true in 83? No, or? no, 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 probably not. Probably later on. But this is an early Depeche Mode classic. I think it's a great song. I also think there were better songs available to pick. Oh, I didn't say that there weren't better songs. I was saying that I think that you might pick some of them so I can get away with picking Depeche Mode. Scott's version of better songs is going to be different. Totally. And they are one of the signature bands of the 80s, so it makes sense for them to have representation. All right, so I've got four songs that I could pick for my last song. There were two in particular. But you can only pick one. Get an outro, or maybe even two outros. If you do the right thing, we may give you a second outro. So, like... If I do the right thing, I'm picking a band where the original version of this song came out before, but this is the classic version of the song. Is that the song you're trying to get me to pick? That's one of them. How do you not pick this song? This is like one of your all-time favorite bands, one of your all-time favorite albums, and this is the signature song on it. Come on, man. We may come to take your life. <laughs> I guess I can't complain since my yeah. second and fourth picks were probably not yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't yeah. say anything. You've gone off the beaten path today. So, no, I will pick this. This is such a Larry song. Come on. Of course it is. It's one of my bands. It's one of my formative bands. I know I gotta pick it.
that was Radio Free Europe by R.E.M., one of the songs that Scott's been predicting I would pick for most of this podcast. Interestingly, we were debating which clip, and we both had similar clips. And, Scott, why would you have picked the clip that you picked? The song builds to the end. The whole thing is great, but just the way it builds to the end is, to me, the best part of the song. And this is basically ground zero for college rock, right? This is the beginning of alternative college rock. Right? Yeah, I mean, you had the Chronic Town EP, which is really good as well. But Murmur is really the big bang of college rock. And this was the first song on it. It's got everything that's great about early R.E.M. Impenetrable lyrics. Yeah, it's got those mumbled lyrics. But it's bouncy, it's cashy, it's singular, it's mysterious. The mumble vocals, the Rickenbacker guitar, which talks back to the 60s with the birds. Very and, much so. And it's also, like, we talked about Jangle Pop before. Like, this is yeah. very much... Myths, right? It's yeah. that American versus UK. They're both huge in that respect. And to me, this is one of the most important songs of the 80s, one of the greatest albums of the 80s. This may not be my favorite song on Murmur. But this There's, is the song you got to pick. This is the song you got to pick, right? Okay. Pilgrimage. Talk about the passion. Talk about the passion. A lot of great songs. This is one of those just press play albums. The whole thing has a mysterious aura, a vibe to it, like Ashley Weeks. Not the same, but you know what I'm saying. No, no, totally. It's got a, it's got a sound. It's got a feel to it. It's got like this consistent feel to it. And we just talked about Snipe vocals. We talked a little bit about the guitar, but the rhythm section of Mills and Barry is great. And the reason I picked that clip is that there's something about the, so you're listening and there's consistent drumming from Bill Berry, but the last verse, the drumming changes and it's a little bit more intense. And like, that's the reason I picked that end clip. When I picked my clip, like I knew it had to be the end because of that. Yeah. And that's another thing. You talked about the sound, the feel of the album. There's a consistency to how this album sounds. I do feel like Murmur's one of those albums. You hear Radio for Europe on, well, you used to on the radio, right? Maybe sometimes you hear talk about the passion, but... Most of the time, you listen to Murmur, like you said, you press play and you listen to it straight through. And for at least the first four REM albums, that's how I would listen to them. And it's funny, when I was in college, huge, huge REM fans in my fraternity, like to the point where when a new album would come out, that day, people, we would go to the store, we would buy it, and people would make a new mix of REM. Like, so, you know, you'd have like the first three or four albums, and then the new album would come out. They'd make a new mix with some of the songs from the fifth album. And it was like a thing. We would do that, right? But the consistency of the sound was always what it was. And it was such a unique vibe. They're one of the most consistently great bands out They were. But they're low-key, subtly consistent. I have to admit, I fell out of REM, like, super fandom in sort of the mid-90s. When Barry left, they were never when, quite the same. They weren't you know? the same when Barry left, yeah. But... From Murmur until, I guess it was Monster, pretty much? I would yeah. say New Adventures in New, New Adventures, yeah, New Adventures. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember the sequencing of which one was. Yeah, yeah that New was Adventures. 96. Great yeah. album. Yeah. yeah. That's a phenomenal 14 to 15 year run. When they were prolific, too, every year he's, or two. He's raising his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get a, a word in on R.E.M. Do you know Death and the Maiden by the Verlaines? I do know that song. Yeah. yeah. Play the beginning just from a college rock standpoint and just tell me what you think. Like and how it fits in with the college rock and indie. Like a New Zealand band, right? Yeah, okay. they were like completely unknown, completely unknown. See how slick he is getting this song in? He does. He, he, he's he doesn't say a word. I'll, I'll play this song then.
Guided by voices. You hear guided by voices immediately, right? Yeah. It's more produced, though. Guided by voices is a little raw. Here in the college rock. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do, for sure. I got nothing to say about Aria. I mean, Ariam is, they're not impeachable. Like, you can't, you can pick it and, and have no, like, qualms about it. I feel like R.E.M. was huge, obviously, in the early 90s and, and the legendary band, but I feel like they're kind Forgot of not, they're almost underrated now. Like how oh, no, I, 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 I think that's totally true. I feel like it's because it's like you said, like, they never had a moment. You know, they did. Losing, losing my, my religion was a moment. And then automatic for the people. I'm not disagreeing. Not losing Wait. my religion and automatic were seminal moments for them, but they were seminal moments for people who were like, Oh, I've been listening to R.E.M. for like 10 years. Now, like, you finally get it. How awesome they were. An album that's obsessed with death, that's completely mellow, like yeah. Automatic for the People, was a monster seller. That's yeah. the quality of the music they had. That yeah. this very uncommercial project became this massive success. You know? And I'm hey, sure not, not, are, are not influenced at all by the fact that John Paul Jones did the strings for Night's Not Night. Not at all. <laughs> are they in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely, they're, you got the it. they're one of the greatest bands of all time. That it's doesn't all... mean they're in the rock and roll. That's thing. true. That's true. That's why I'm asking. Don't get me started on that rock and roll Hall of Fame. Is Don't Division in the Hall of Fame? No, they're not. They should be. I know. I know. That was a loaded question. As should New Order. At least a two for one entry, right? So we're saying to all of our fans, all of our yeah. loyal listeners, you need to advocate for Joy Division of New Order being in the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. Groundswell. Let's go. So no, Scott Floman quoting Scott Floman says that <laughs> yeah. Joy Division and New Order should be in the Hall of Fame. Wait, but actually, this is really Keith Floman quoting Floman. Scott Floman, quoting Scott Floman with the mustache, with a diabolical mustache. So Keith has a fake mustache on him. Like Larry mentioned, this was originally recorded, I think, in 1981. Yeah. Right? So the original single is faster, more raw, and more punk, but less moody and mysterious. Which version do you like better? Right? I'm assuming this one. The, this one. I, and, you know, it's funny. I remember the first time I heard the original version, I was like. A little what? amateurish, right? Yeah. So I was like, what the by fuck? Is yeah. You can get that on the eponymous compilation, by the that's way. Where, no, that's where I heard it, was on yeah. eponymous. So I remember getting eponymous, and I'm like, what is this? But. I can appreciate it, but no, this is a better version. This is the classic version, but it's the better version. This one is clear-cut. The Murmur version is the one you need to listen to. Yeah. All right. He didn't know what he was picking in his first pick, so I doubt he knows what he's picking. I now. don't know what I'm picking right now. Talk about songs that need to be picked. Talk about the passion. Do the right thing. You can't. You can't bully me. You know you can't bully me. He is stubborn like that. I will give him that. Great. Great pick. I had this on my on my, my It's list. a great song, but not the right pick. No, hey, that's, that's the right, that's the right pick. pick. What's no, wrong with you? No, it's not. Why is this not the right pick? Because this underground song, and there are overground songs that we haven't picked that must be picked. Well, that's why we leave that up to you, my friend. <laughs> but I'm not going to pick them. I'm going to be a dick, too. <laughs> this is not being a dick. Look, music is personal. Music is very much how you feel. I'm not surprised he picked it. I'm not. I'm not either. This is on my list. This is a great pick. There is a grandness to this song. There's a largeness to what this song actually is that, you know, again, it's, you can't, you, fuck, fuck you, fuck you. Yeah. You cannot yeah. impeach this song. Will I still record when the skin is lost? Am I the way 
said it, you were wrong. I mean, come on. I didn't say this wasn't a great song. I just said that there were bigger and maybe even better songs. That's all. This is unarguably top two of Echo and the Bunnymen. And the first introduction on this podcast. And again, there's a majestic grandness to this song. Like, there's there's a largeness to it, man. It swallows you up. I draw a a little bit of a parallel between what you two was doing at the time. Yeah, I was just going to say that. There's definitely a symmetry with those two bands, for sure. I mean, this song is gigantic. The way it builds, the emotion that it, it just consumes you with. It's big, man. It's fucking large. It's consuming. It's engulfing. That violin, which Sunday Bloody Sunday has as well, it's totally anthemic, majestic, like you said. Powerful vocals. It's got that post-punk vibe, which early U2 and The Cure, me, are their, like, peers, their contemporaries. It's got multiple sections, the ambition of the song. It all fits together well. It's atmospheric. Got a propulsive rock drive. Just a very distinct combination. It's a great tune, man, no doubt. And great band we haven't talked about yet. We'll talk about them some more in 84 for sure. I actually thought we wouldn't talk about them until the next podcast, but I did have this on my list because it's a great, great song. And it's... It's very evocative of this era. This is one of those songs where, again, if you played it for me, I'd say, like, this is early 80s, but I'd also say it's timeless. Like, to me, uh, particularly the clip that Keith picked, the end, which was a similar clip to what I had, it just feels like it could be of any era. It's a little gothy, it's a little synthy, it's a little new wavy, but... Orangey, they're, they're, they're fucking orange. Yeah. All right, Scott, do the right thing. Pick it. Come on. You know you want to. This next song was a monster number one hit from a huge album that briefly made this band the biggest band in the world. Every Breath You Take by The Police from Synchronicity, which turned out to be their last studio album together, as they were a rare band to quit while on top in their prime, though obviously Sting went on to a very successful solo career as well. Every Breath You Take is very seductive, and famously, it's one of the all-time misunderstood songs. Like R.E.M.'s The One I Love, this is not a love song but is in fact a sinister stalker song set to a beautiful and extremely catchy mid-tempo melody. Do not play this song at your wedding. (laughs) 
think Johnny Ryan would say this is not a love song. Yeah. This is not a love song. This is a deviously seductive song. It totally sounds like a love song. It totally has that vibe, and it's not at all, like you said. It is a stalker, stalker. song. Yeah, it's a control song, let's face it, right? It's like, hey, I'm in control of you, and I'm going to be watching every single thing that you do. But as you said, this is one of the seminal songs of 83. And this album was like the album of 83. And if you're of a certain age, this song was unavoidable. Unavoidable. And I distinctly remember like being super bitter that I could not get tickets to this tour. Because at this point, the police were the biggest band in the world. But you had no idea like this is it. You were like, okay, this is the biggest album in the world. This is the biggest band in the world. I want to go see them. And, you know, they'll have another album in like two years or a year and a half or whatever. And I'll go see them. This was it. Like, nobody yeah. knew it at the time. Very rare that that's happened where a band quit while on top as the biggest band in the world. Yeah. And Barry he, Sanders. Of, yeah. uh, or Calvin Johnson, right? Yeah. Right, guys? Anyway, we've talked about that a couple of times where we're like, you have artists who are at the top of their game and then left, but not voluntarily. Usually it's because of little, little too much uh, enjoying of life, like Jimmy... Yeah. Janice or whatnot, right? This was a band at the height of their powers that basically said, all right, you know what? We're, we're good. We're done. We're going to go do our own shit now. Well, they kind of broke up. They didn't get along, basically. Yeah. There were issues. First. But there are lots of bands that have done that and then come back. They came back. They came back. But it was literally a full of money. I saw them in concert. I saw them in concert. Yeah, yeah. It was just concerts. They were never fully back. They never right, that's what I mean. another studio album. Right? They didn't do another album. Like, this is yeah. it. This is the end of the police. And this album had other monster hits, like King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Finger, Synchronicity, and even One better hit. yet, Synchronicity 2, which I think is a top five police song. Great freaking song. Yeah. And it's funny, this is the first time we've talked about the police. They were on the precipice of several of my drafts, like yet so only in 78. So only is their best song. Yeah, I agree. We all agree on that. Everybody Take is probably their second best song. We mm -hmm. have Message in a Bottle, 79. Yep. Every Little Thing She Does is Magic, 81. They were on my board. Obviously, Roxanne in pop culture history. Roxanne as well, right. in 78. Yep. And then you think Eddie Murphy, right, with 48. Totally. 48 Hours. I was a huge police fan. I had every one of their albums. At the time, in 1983, I loved them. I was a huge, huge fan. I don't go back to them as much. Like, yeah, if a song comes on, I'll listen to it. But, like, the only song that I would say is, like, consistently on my radar or my playlist is so only because that, that is by far their best song. So good, so good. And Stuart Copeland, one of the all-time greatest drummers. They're like the Who in that the drummer is actually that lead instrumentalist, which yeah. is pretty rare. Andy yeah. Summers is a great guitar player as well. Sting, obviously, the main guy in the band, so charismatic. That vocal style, you know it's him as soon as you hear him, like Rod yeah. Stewart or Joe Cocker or someone like that. Great band, was never like a huge, huge fan. But I acknowledge that they were a phenomenal band. And this is certainly one of their signature songs. This was well, and this is like their swan song. So it's it's good that we picked it. Good acknowledgement. We had to pick it. You talk about 1983. How do you not talk about the police? They own 1983. Before we close out and go to our closing song, we have to talk about the other song that you put up as one of the potentials for us to vote on, which was Time After Time by Cindy Lauper. 
All right, let's play it. Fuck it. Play it. Okay. Fuck it. <laughs> you talk about a great pop album. The first six songs of She's So Unusual. I agree. It's a great pop album. Man, that's hard to top. She certainly never came close to it. You're gonna make me cry, man. Fuck, man. Like I said, those first six songs, and in particular, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, upbeat feminist dance anthem. Then he got two all time bows, in my opinion. <laughs> all Through the Night, a Jewel Shear cover, and especially this one, right? Time after time. You haven't even gotten to the masturbation anthem of Shebop. Shebop. The Prince cover, which you talked about, right? Yep. Money Changes Everything. Yeah, all great. great. It's a great. It's a great album. It's an underrated album. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me time after time. If you fall, I will catch you. I'll be waiting time after time. That fucking hits every time, man. Oh, totally. It's great. It's unbelievable. Great ballad. Great tune. So we wanted to throw that in there as an extra pick. After a song time. After a song time. So this is a song that definitely deserved to be drafted. But I kind of see the man it. whose head expanded. <laughs> Are we going to burn down the house? We're not going to burn down the house. We're going to play the man off this album. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I can't believe we didn't draft it. I actually think this could have been the number one pick. This is a phenomenal song. Can I interrupt for a shout out to uh, Billy Bragg for 1983? Oh, we're doing yeah. shout now. New New England for Billy Bragg. Since. We're doing shout-outs. Here we go. I got a I got a few. I, I got like 40 shout-outs. I'll do just a few. Elvis Costello. Oh. Shipbuilding. Tom Waits. In the Neighborhood. Def Leppard. Photograph. Metallica. The Four Horsemen. John Mellencamp. Pink Houses. Journey Faithfully. I'm done. Really? I was planning on waiting for like two or three more minutes. You sure you're done? I can keep going. That I have no doubt.
Good night, y'all. Good night, Mr. Boys.